All right, week two in uh, our series, Dave, an Unlikely Hero. And today is not the funnest topic to uh, talk about. Uh, today we're going to talk about the most destructive force on planet Earth, uh, and that's sin. Certainly not the most exciting thing to cover, but one that we must, and one that quite frankly does have an uplifting peace-producing, joy-giving end if we will follow what God teaches us about it. Now, I, I want you to imagine with me, if you would, that, uh, and this is a dream, uh, that, that I dream and uh, that, I, that I die and I go to heaven. And I get to heaven and I'm kind of looking around and I notice that there are these hallways in heaven and I'm wandering some of these hallways and, and I see up on these hallways clocks, thousands of clocks. And, and I wonder, what, what are all of these clocks for? Um, and I notice that the bottom of every one of the clock is the name of somebody. So I go to, I go to Peter and I said, say, Peter, what... What are, all of these, what are all of these clocks for? Do these, does this indicate the time that a person has left, you know, on planet Earth? And he said, no, no, those are sin-o-meters. He said, uh, those clocks keep track of the sins that are committed by that particular person. For every tick, it's a sin that they have committed. It's a sin-o-meter. So I, I think, well, okay. Uh, I, I, I start looking for names then, and I find Caleb Kinnaman's <laughs> clock, and I see you know, 20 seconds goes by, tick. 15 seconds go by, tick. Uh-oh, right? So um, I, I go and I find Pastor Michael's, and, and his is like 10 seconds, tick. 10 seconds, tick. Uh, guys, we may need to have a serious staff meeting here in the next uh, couple weeks. And then I think, well, I'm going to go find my wife's clock. So I go and I find Sarah's clock, and it's like tick, 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 tick. And I look all over, and I cannot find my clock anywhere. I, I can't find it. So I go to Peter, and I'm like, Peter, so I can't find my clock. Does that mean that I have, you know, that, that I got to the place where, where I was spiritually mature enough that, that I wasn't sinning anymore? And Peter laughed. He said, ha, no, 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 we have your clock down at the office. We're using it as a fan. See, we all sin. There isn't any one of us that can say we're better than anyone else. As Paul says, there is no one good, not, not one. And, and so we need to be sure that we are making an accounting of our own sin. We can't ignore it. We can't think that it will just go away. And we can't think that God will just sweep it under the rug uh, he had to specifically do something to pay for the sin that you and I commit. And today, we're going to be looking at how this sin, uh, the destruction and consequences that come with it, how that played out in the life of, of King David. Now, David had, as we talked last week, incredible ta talents and, and gifts. He was the anointed, or he was an anointed king, of God. God sought him out. God called him a man after his own heart. Uh, David shepherded sheep when he was younger. God 
provided him with the strength and the boldness that he needed to protect those sheep from a bear. And uh, he knew that God was greater than the Philistine army when he stood up against Goliath. God fashioned David to be more and more like himself the longer David lived. Now next week, Brandon Buller is going to be looking at the, uh, some, some pretty dark times in the life of David, some time that he spent in a cave, in fact. But as we look through Scripture, we see that God did some of his best work in caves. Jesus was crucified and he was buried in a cave. God raised him on the third day. God knows a lot about caves. And, and then when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Israel, David worshipped God Uh, We saw last week he expressed his worship with God by dancing, not to make a show, but because he was passionate about uh, his king. He loved God so much. He wrote psalm after psalm after psalm. He was a man after God's own heart. Then we come to this episode that we're looking at today, quite possibly one of the most well-known accounts in the Old Testament. And it causes us to ask ourselves this question. How could a man who's living his life as a man after God's own heart, who has seen God work, who has seen God do all the things that he has through him, how could he fall into such temptation? How could David make the decisions that he did? He lusted, he committed adultery, he lied, he deceived, and he ultimately committed murder. How could this happen? To a man who is called one after God's own heart, how could he do this? And and then I want to turn that question around to each one of us, and I want to ask you, who in this room thinks that they are spiritually mature enough to the point where you think to yourself, there is no way I could ever sin in that way that David did? How many of us might think that. And and here's a hard truth that we don't like to hear. Of course, we are all fallen. We all fall short. And in that fallenness, it's uh, this struggle that we have against sin is something that we will wrestle with until the day that we die. It will always be there to tempt us. It's a serious struggle. It's your struggle and it's my struggle. And it's one that we can't be self-righteously arrogant about because that's when it can happen to us. When we think it can't or won't, we become naive about it. I want to remind us that as a church here at North Hills, it's not our goal to to go out there and find all the perfect people and have them come here on a Sunday morning and, and gather together. Of course, we know there aren't any, but maybe more people that are more perfect than others. You know, that's, that's not our goal. We're, we're looking for people that have been cast aside in the ditch of life, people that are, that are imperfect, people that are struggling, people who need others. And if you look around the room right now, you'll notice that we're doing a pretty good job of that. Because we have a lot of people here who are in that place and have been in that place. Our passage this morning is a huge portion of Scripture uh, so we're not going to read it all. If you would turn with me to 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, chapter 11 and 12 are going to be the two chapters that we're covering today. And, and today we're going to see that David uh, faces 
four defining moments in his life in chapters 11 and 12. Four defining moments. In fact, these same defining moments occur to all of us. We cross also these four defining moments in our lives. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. It says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Four defining moments. First thing I want us to think about today, and, and I hope you'll write these down because they are four moments that we will all face sometime in our life. In fact, maybe some of you are at the doorstep of one of these points here this morning as you sit there or as you are watching on, online at home. The, the first defining moment that occurred in David's life was the drift factor. The, the drift factor. Winter is the rainy season in Israel. Winter is the time of year when all the crops are planted. This time that we're in with, with King David here, this is springtime. Springtime was when the weather conditions were the best for traveling. It was the dry season. The roads were dry. It was ideal for moving massive amounts of troops and wagons and chariots. And the wheat and the barley were nearing harvest time this time of year. Easy pickings for all of these men moving about the countryside for them to find food. This was the time when kings left the secure confines of their castle, of their walls, and went off with their troops in battle. But where is David? David, is he remains in Jerusalem for whatever reason. We're not told why. Maybe he's nearing... Uh, uh, maybe he's going through a midlife crisis. He's nearing the age of 50. Maybe there's some things that he's struggling with. I, I don't know. Bottom line is, David has lost sight of his purpose. One of his purposes as king was to lead his troops in battle. And there were battles that need to be fought. Now, it seems at this point in the text, in the narrative, that, that David has possibly distance himself from God. I, I doubt it was intentional. How many of us intentionally distance ourselves from God? We wake up one morning and say, I'm done. I'm, I'm, God, you know what? I'm just going to do, do today myself. No, instead we wake up in the morning with the best of intentions and by the end of the day we've tried to get through the whole thing without him. That is the way it often happens. Why wasn't David getting alone with God like he was accustomed to? Why wasn't he meditating on God's precepts and statutes, which he writes so often about in, in the Psalms? I mean, like a lioness after a water buffalo calf, all alone, separated from the herd, that's kind of where David seems to be in this moment. He's, he's trying to do this on his own. He's not asking his close advi advisors for their wisdom. He's just doing his own thing. Why is he so restless? I mean, did David forget that God always has his best interest in mind? Did David forget that God put him in the place that he was, that he provided for him? Why did he quit trusting? These are questions that I think we should consider ourselves as we look and consider this drift factor. Verse 2, chapter 11, it goes on. One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. 
From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. Instead of learning from the experience that I'm sure David has read about multiple times of how Joseph uh, took care of the temptation that was in his life, a very similar situation, although this woman was not throwing herself at David's feet, he instead of running, of, of just maybe intentionally getting up at a different time, going to a different place. He chooses the, uh, the path of a voyeur and entertains his eyes and his temptation. Uh, we're not told a lot of details about this, but why, why was David up from his bed in the first place? Uh, why, why did he know her routines? Is this just a one-chance thing, or, or has he multiple times been getting up and and watching Bathsheba bathe, bathe in the night. Maybe he told himself that he was just admiring an, an incredible creation of God. Maybe, maybe he said to himself, I just want to meet her because she seems like a really nice girl. Or I just want to have coffee with her. I just want to talk with her some more because she really seems to understand me. How many of us have been in situations similar to that? And, and I don't want to just, just fixate and focus on the sin of adultery, though that is the main thing that we're learning here from. But every sin, we can rationalize it in our minds. We can make it seem okay. That's what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to become comfortable with it. You see, moral failure and sin are rarely the flipping of a switch. It's more like the slow, it's more like slowly turning up a dimmer switch. Uh, Casting Crowns captures this process in their song Slow Fade. We showed it a month or so ago here this morning. And it's exactly what happened to David. The, the song goes, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. The journey from your mind to your hands is shorter than you are thinking. Be careful if you think you stand, you just might be sinking. The moral failure of our children, of wives, husbands, pastors... Politicians, we've seen it over and over again, haven't we? And it's not going to stop. Close friends and coworkers that weren't held at a safe distance. We are all at great risk if we are drifting. Some years ago, people ridiculed our then vice president for not being willing to meet with a woman alone at a restaurant. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't care what position I am in. My wife and I have decided that we're not going to put ourselves, not that, he said, not that I would, but it's when we start thinking that way. It's when we become naive and say, oh, it's okay. Nothing's going to happen, uh-huh. And we willingly put ourselves in what's in our mind is not a risky situation, but becomes a risky situation. And, and my question is, and, and I want us all to, 
to, to search our hearts seriously this morning. Are you in that place this morning? Are you in a place where you have found yourself drifting? Even, even just in a, in a matter of uh, maybe not being committed to attend church or, or something else that you've committed yourself to in the past. Reading your Bible every day. Spending time in prayer every day. Meeting with others regularly for prayer or Bible study or, or whatever it might be. As I said last week, there's one thing that this pandemic has made it easy for, for the enemy to wield, it's isolation. And, and we need to do that smartly, I get that, but we can't use that as a broad sword to cover every relationship that we have, because if we do, we're going to find ourselves alone and in a slow fade because there's nobody else to notice that there's anything happening. So the second defining moment in David's life and ours, and this morning just might be that for some of us, is the warning light. Traffic lights fascinate me. Uh, We used to have some down in the New Life Center. So what do we do when the light is green? We go, right? What do we do when the light is red? Stop. Easy. But what do we do when it's yellow? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's some interpretation there. So when did it turn yellow? Is it a count of two? Is it a count of three? How big a vehicle am I driving? Do, am I, is there a point where I say, nope, not stopping? Sometimes you say, well, that one was pink. Right? Have you ever said that? Maybe should have stopped. I'll stop at the next one. What does the yellow light mean? It means caution. It's a warning that that you're going to have to stop. I really like, there's some of them, like that one where you're heading into Scotts Bluff just before the stoplight at Walmart there on the corner, where there's a sign back that starts flashing just before the light turns to yellow. So you know there's like a warning for the warning. It's helpful. I mean, I, you're going 55 miles an hour, so it is helpful, so you don't have to slam on the brakes. But how many of you speed up when you see the first one just come on so that you can get through, through the next one? See, David received just this kind of warning. Look at verse 3. And David sent someone to find out about her, and this man, whoever he was, must have been pretty close to the king because he was pretty honest and sort of questioning this order that he has just been given by the king. Isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Maybe, King David, this little errand you're running me on isn't necessarily a good one. That was a warning to King David. The author of Chuck Colson's Breakpoint said this about the moral fall of a a former governor of South Carolina. His name was Mark Sanford, and this is what he says. This was quite a few years ago. The particular tragedy of Sanford is that he had been an outstanding governor. He's attractive, engaging, and smart. Sounds like King David, actually. He was an articulate and tenacious defender of family values, and he espoused the cause of Christ. And now... 
His career lies on the ash heap of history. He had to gracefully withdraw from political life and and try to put his shattered marriage back together. I mentioned sadness and depression, he says. Sanford's admission is simply the latest among pro-family conservative Christian politicians. See, none of us are immune from this. Whatever position we have on the planet, no one is immune. Mark Sanford, he says, probably the last man in American public life who I would have expected to so incredibly disappoint us. And it is frustrating when we read about a well-known pastor or theologian or politician who proclaimed to be a committed Christ follower, which, again, we do as well. They're not immune to sin. He says, most of all, I am bewildered. Sanford had it all. A beautiful wife and family, high public office, and he was a viable candidate, perhaps, for president. Why would he throw it all away? The answer came to me as I stewed over Sanford's demise, and that's where many of us go first. We just get angry and maybe even cynical because we expected more more than we expect of ourselves. He says, as I have reflected on my own life and my own failures, particularly before I knew the Lord, we humans, you see, have an infinite capacity for self-rationalization. We reason that we can give in to those seemingly minor temptations, say an emotional attraction to a coworker or just one drink at a party, because we think we know the boundaries and we can keep them. We think our reason can keep us safe. And nearly every grave moral failure begins with a small sin because there comes a time after we toy with sin when one pull of the flesh causes us to cross that line, to disengage from reason, and to follow our appetites wherever they may lead. And I'm afraid this is especially easy today. We're told we can have it all that we can be free to pursue any pleasure. Our wills are not trained to do what is good, but to do what pleases us, our humanity. And And if the world says no, we complain and complain and complain and try and draw as many people as we can to our side until the world finally says okay. And what... 20 or 30 years ago was maybe a mental disorder has become just normal. So many different things could fit into that definition. It's the slow fade. It's the step onto the slippery slope. And and as a culture, as a nation, as a world, we are gaining speed, I'm afraid. Think about what David did. You see, I think, I think one of the things that David thought, David thought he could handle anything, uh, and, and I think he was king, and maybe some of his power had gone to his head. I don't know. But I think David not only thought he could handle everything, but he, he could hide everything. In, in, in this passage, 
He used, they used the word sent seven times. David didn't do this, some of this stuff himself. He sent somebody else to go do it. Because if, I don't know, maybe rationalized, if I'm not actually doing it myself, then it somehow makes it okay. I, I don't know. Not only will it be successful, maybe at having my desires, David may have thought, but no one will find out. And then something happens that wasn't in the script. David received a message from Bathsheba. Remember, the, the troops are all out fighting, including Bathsheba's husband. David is back at home for whatever reason, living it up. Verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now what? It looks like David has been caught, which brings us to the third defining moment, and that is the response. David finally, I think, here in this moment in time, senses that he's in trouble. He's received some yellow lights along the way. He's received warning, maybe even blown through some red ones. So how does he respond? When it comes to sin, there's just two responses. The first response is to confess and repent. To realize that, that what we've done is wrong and to confess that wrongness and to repent. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, first of all, John says, look, if you think you've not sinned, you're you're making God out to be a liar. We all sin. But he says, if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confess. And then, and then repent means that we turn away from, from what we're doing. David, David was warned. He has a chance. But instead, he makes the other choice. And the second choice when we've been confronted by our sin is to rationalize and control. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab, who is the one he sent off to do what he should have been doing. Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. So he sends word off. Uriah comes back to Jerusalem. Now, none of us like to suffer consequences, even if we know that we deserve them. So we try to figure out a way to avoid them. And when we do that, it usually spells cover-up. What are we going to do to cover this up? How are we going to do this? And, and to cover up our sin means that we're going to have to be in control of the situation. And, and David did his best to control the situation. So, so what does he do? He, he brings Uriah home in the hopes that Uriah sleeps with his wife while he's home because he's been gone for a long time so that lo and behold, she's pregnant and he's off the hook and then Uriah's the father of the child, right? That's what is happening in his mind. 
And Uriah, being one of King David's top warriors, doesn't go home. Because he says, why would I enjoy something with my wife that all of those other men that I'm fighting with back out in the countryside can't enjoy? Nope, not going to happen. So it doesn't work. David thinks he's in control. It doesn't work. So he continues to try and, and maintain control. And instead of now only manipulating the situation and committing adultery, now he sends word back to Joab essentially to have Uriah killed. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah is killed. David takes Bathsheba as his wife, this mourning widow. And then no one is the wiser. Except for David. He's, he's been... It's got to be eaten on him. I don't know. Maybe he's convinced himself that this is all okay. But you see, the choice, this choice to, to try and not suffer consequences and to not confess and repent immediately will always lead us deeper and deeper into the clutches of sin. And the story has to get bigger and, and more extravagant, and we have to try and control more situations. We have to try and hide more things. David goes from an adulterer to a conspirator and finally to a murderer. And I wonder this morning where you are in regard to anything, any sin that seems to have a hold of you. Are you seeing yellow and red lights flashing? Have you had friends trying to help you make good decisions and you're just, you're just refusing to see it? Don't, don't try to cover it up. Don't continue to be dragged down deeper and deeper because that's what happens. Confess and repent. And as painful as it may look on this side... Turn it over to God. Psalm 139, 23 through 34. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Are you drifting? Have you made some terrible decisions? Well, maybe today is that red light. Today is the day you say, whoa, you know what? It's time to confess this. It's time to repent. It's, it's time to surrender this. The drift factor, the warning light, the response, David has now put himself in a pretty ugly place. And God won't allow it to go on any longer and doesn't. So our fourth defining moment this morning from David's life is the pronouncement of God. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said... So, so there's some things that Nathan does here as he brings this message to David from God. First of all, he, he brings it carefully. 
David is still king. David could still command his head be lopped off. And Nathan tells this story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead... He took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Just a little story, just a little illustration. David burned with anger against the man. Of course this is wrong. Who would do that? As surely as the Lord lives, David says, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Think about that for a moment. Nathan had to be shaking in his shoes. I'm not sure he expected the response from David that David had here for this story. But David is right. And then, if you haven't read on yet, then Nathan says to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. If David had only come to the point of repentance and seeking the forgiveness of God earlier on. But he didn't. He hid it and he hid it and he justified it. And now finally, finally David's response is a broken and contrite heart. Finally David realizes what he has done has been wrong. And when we cry out to God in repentance and seek his forgiveness, he will hear our cries. He will forgive us. Now, there's still consequences. We can't forget that. David suffered some pretty grave consequences. There's that one, the sword never departing from his own house. And as we look through the rest of his life and see the lives of his children, we can see how devastating the sword becomes in his family.
Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. And then David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then what does, what does Nathan say? The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. And he does. It's another part of David's life story. But what we all need to hear, whether it is us who have committed the sin, or maybe it's somebody who has sinned against God and against us, we need to remember that God forgives. Before you get discouraged because of your sin or because of the sin of someone else, it certainly can be discouraging. Sometimes it seems like it's, it's a sin that we just can't seem to conquer. We just continue to fall into the trap of whatever it is. And some of that's because we, we don't establish offensive plans. We, we continue to go to the same places that have that temptation. Instead, we should not go there. We, we can make decisions on how we live to keep, the, when those yellow lights start showing up, we need to put the brakes on. When dealing with the sin in our lives, we need to remember two words. Write these down if you're taking notes. All caps, but God. But God. Look at Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 up here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But God, that is the good news. That is the gospel. Jesus came, lived, died, was raised again, conquered not just the power of sin and death, but he conquered the consequences, the eternal consequences for each one who would put their faith and trust in him as their savior. By grace we have been saved. The price has been paid for our sin. See, God doesn't just shove it under a rug. He takes it upon himself. Jesus took the sin of the world on himself. But God, this is where we go with our sin. Don't cover it up. Don't hide it. Don't indulge it. Make the hard decision and stop. Put it square in the middle of the light. So you can see it. I know that's hard. And I know it can be painful, but not near as painful as going down. Clinging, trying to hide our sin. 
Romans 6, and 23, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. There are no other wages to sin but death, bondage, Darkness, pain. Are you seeing warning lights on your dashboard of life? What has been your response? Where are you this morning? It's time to stop trying to hide it. You know those check engine lights that come on your dashboard? We have one on a car. I knew what it was six months ago was an O2 sensor. Did I replace the O2 sensor? Not yet. See, I tried resetting the code and it just kept coming back. But the problem is, who knows if that's the only one in there right now? Maybe there's a more serious one, but because the light's already on, I don't know. Our life can be that way, and before long... Our engine seizes up. And we wonder, well, I thought the light would get brighter. Maybe it would, why didn't it start flashing? Like that would have helped. Let's take a moment this morning and let's ask God to search our hearts. And to reveal any wicked way that's there. The worship team would come up here, and as we prepare for communion this morning, um, I'm going to pray through Psalm 51. You can turn there if you'd like. If, If not, that's fine. Just close your eyes and listen. Jesus gave us communion to remember and to celebrate the sacrifice that he made, the only sacrifice, the only thing that could be done to give us freedom to purify us from all of our unrighteousness. The bread represents his broken body. The cup represents the blood that he shed. And by partaking of this, we're saying, we believe it's true. Jesus was God. He died. He rose from the dead. And in partaking of this, I agree with that. And I remember, I celebrate, I worship, I thank him for what he did because it's only because of what he did that I can live a life of peace and joy knowing that my sins, past, present, and future, are covered over because of what he did. I have put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And this morning, after I pray through this and the servers come up, it's, there's a cup of bread and a cup of juice, and they're going to walk in between the chairs as best they can so that we're not passing trays this morning. Let's pray. This is a psalm. This is the psalm that David wrote after the prophet Nathan came to him and he committed adultery. This is his thought process. And it should be our thought process as we think through those things, those sins that we're hanging on to. Uh, Not that it's adultery. Sin. Let's pray. Father God, I 
I pray that you would have mercy on me. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Father God, would you blot out my transgressions? Would you wash away all the sin and iniquity and cleanse me from it? The impure thoughts, the temptations that come to my life each day, those that I give into, please forgive me. Please wash them. Cleanse me from that sin. For I know my transgressions. And I know my sin, it's always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and and you are justified when you judge, when you show me those things in my life that are wrong and my arrogance and my pride and immoral thoughts. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. And I know, Father, that you desire truth in my inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and and I, I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Oh, Father, please hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Search my heart. Show me. I'm sure there's things that I've become comfortable with Sins that I have justified or minimized because, of course, the world is much worse than me. Father, help me be truthful and honest with you. And Father, I pray that you would create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me that I might be able to stand up against those temptations and those things that lead me down the wrong path. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then help me, Father, to teach others your ways. Help me, Father, to to experience joy and peace in my own life that I might help others who are not experiencing joy and peace that they too might turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And Father, I pray that you would help me to live in that way with a broken and a contrite heart, one that is not prideful. For each one of us, Father, 
Help us to see how much you love us, how much we've been forgiven, and help us to surrender to you. And in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. O oh Lord, this morning I pray as we partake of, the com- of this communion, representing your broken body and your shed blood, may we worship you. May we honor you with the thoughts in our minds and the repentance on our hearts. We glorify you. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's